And hello, this is Napoleon, man of short stature. <laughs> this is killing history with Caleb and Ryan. Thanks, Napoleon. Man, it's glad I'm glad to have you around. I mean, you're with what we're talking about. You're you're either dead or on Saint Helena right now. So okay, but thank you. Welcome to Killing History, folks. I am Ryan. I am Caleb. And uh, we are going to, once again, uh, be your amazing guides through American history. Uh, so our first episode, not too bad, uh, not too good, but not too bad. We were impressed. Uh, this time we have a format. Uh, we have uh, much, uh, Caleb and I, uh, the last episode uh, was definitely more um, Ryan-focused, centered, Caleb, not too super knowledgeable on the War of 1812, but here we go. The American Civil War, uh, that's what we're going to dive into today, specifically uh, the Battle of Gettysburg. Everybody knows about it. We know. Um, but we're going to put our own twist, our own spin on it, and we're, gonna, we're just going to have some fun with it. Uh, and maybe you'll learn something that uh, you didn't know before. Uh, so that that's always our hope. <laughs> we're recording this with our cameras on, so I'm trying <laughs> I'm trying not to laugh uh, here in this. Uh, and I'll, I'm going to be quite honest. Uh, we can say uh, due to COVID, we're recording separately. But folks, we've always recorded separately. Always. Even before never COVID. Once have we recorded together? No, we planned on it. We always thought about it, but we just never did it. And now that I live three and a half hours away. And we, we don't have a studio. I haven't seen Caleb in person in over a year. In person. And that sucks. I, 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 I'm still carrying his child. <laughs> oh, geez. <laughs> you like my rocket ship flying across the screen? I did. I did. Um, so I, I guess we'll, we'll go right into it. And first and foremost, the Civil War. Whoo-wee, what a humdinger of a war. Um, wow. The oh, South yeah. call the South calls it uh, War of Northern Aggression. And North the North calls it <laughs> the Southerns being pussy ass bitches. Yeah, uh, folks, if you if you're uh, if you're big fans of that uh, Southern battle flag, there, hang it up. You lost the war. Suck it up. It's over. Nobody likes sore losers. All right, flag of Northern Virginia, <laughs> and those who fly it are still virgins. <laughs> oh jeez! I'm ready for the hate mail today. Uh, you ain't kidding. I am too. <laughs> yeah. Do, do you have any opening thoughts on the Civil War before we get started here? Not much. No. Other than the South lost, get over it. The only flag that you're going to be flying of uh, the Confederate States is a white flag going, I surrender. <laughs> That'd be historically accurate. That's for damn sure. All right. Uh, so I guess in order to get an understanding, uh, we're just going to open up with uh, kind of like a summary of why the Civil War was fought in the beginning of the Civil War. Really quick. We're going to go over a lot of information very quickly. But in order to do that, we have to go all the way back to... September 17th of 1787. Why? 
That is when the Constitution of the United States was signed, not ratified. It wouldn't be ratified until June of 1789. Um, so why do we have to go that far back, Caleb? Because it sets up the... Uh, well, what's the word I'm looking for? The adoption or adaptation of the states becoming part of the Union. That... And they left one key thing in the Constitution of the United States. What was it? The uh, why can't I think of the actual term? It's one word. Starts with an S and ends with slavery. Oh, slavery. Yes, when you individual states. Yes, they left it up to individual states. Once again, the federal government, James Madison, uh, was a uh, was a big uh, fan of the federal government not having to do a whole heck of a lot. Uh, we have to remember that they left those local issues up to the states to uh, to determine. Because of that, slavery was left in our constitution. Uh, most northern states, even when the constitution was being ratified, already said. Why? We don't need it. Uh, there, uh, we, we were, industry was already starting. Blah, 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 blah. You know what's going to happen here in the morning? Sir. Old damn rebel army's going to be here. They'll move through this town, occupy these hills on the other side, and our people get here, Lee will have the high ground, they'll be the devil to pay. The high ground. Meade will come in slowly, cautiously. Knew the command. To be on his back from Washington. Wires hot with messages. Attack! Attack! So he will set up a ring around these hills. Then when Lee's army is all nicely entrenched behind fat rocks on the high ground, Meade will finally attack if he can coordinate the army. Straight up the hillside. Out in the open. In that gorgeous field of fire. We will charge valiantly and be butchered valiantly. See in hell, Billy Yank. See in hell, Johnny Red. Like we were saying. <laughs> the South um, decided to keep their slaves. In fact, um, with the Constitution, uh, yeah, the, the three-fifths compromise where every uh, three slaves um, accounted for five people, even though... Um, the South didn't want to count them as people, but they wanted to count them at, uh, for voting rights. Um, so really, and that's where also the Electoral College came in. Um, just uh, uh, what it boils down to is we left the issue. Um, if you guys uh, ever watched How I Met Your Mother, that sounds like a problem for future future Ted and Marshall. Same mentality. They didn't want to deal with it. They left it up to the future generations to deal with it. Uh, men like Henry Clay did everything they could to keep pushing back and trying to delay the inevitable, which in the late 1850s happened. We're not going to go into super amount of details what happened. Uh, you had bleeding Kansas after the Kansas-Nebraska Act. Uh, you had the Missouri Compromise. Um, really, the Civil War wasn't as much a war uh, for slavery in the North or in the South as it was to determine what states would be free or slave states in the West. That was the issue. That was the main grievance. That was one of the 
biggest reasons that once Abraham Lincoln South didn't want the northern states dictating how the southern people were going to be living and how they were going to make ends meet and work the fields and have enough people working said fields. Well, um, here's the thing, and I always, I always believed that too. Um, it was, and and we'll discuss it a little bit. It was called the Lost Cause of the Confederacy, claiming that states for it was the war was over states' rights and not necessary for sla- necessarily for slavery. We will touch base on that, and I'm pretty sure you're going to learn something, Caleb. Um, but with that, uh, we're going to go right into our. Um, Our, our, our uh, Civil War extravaganza. We're going to go right into it and leading up to Gettysburg. Uh, so with that, we had the Republican, Abraham Lincoln, running for president. He would win the presidency um, in 1860 and would become president in 1861. Uh, Lincoln was a Republican. Uh, Caleb, were Republicans in 1860s progressives or conservatives? Back then, yes. they were progressives, and they thought outside the box. Yes. Okay. And And the other guys, um, I can't remember what they were actually called. They weren't Democrats then. They were they they were they were Republican Democrats, referred to as Democrats, but they no longer exist. They were the ones that actually were like, well, let's keep things traditional. Right, uh, not th- keeping the status quo, not necessarily saying that they wanted for, um, slavery, which most of them were Southern Democrats, but keeping the status quo. Uh, that that was their most important thing. Um, the status quo. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. Stick with what you know. <laughs> I thought you were going to throw some other music musical talents in there. <laughs> I'm not dancing. Oh, jeez. Yes, I will start out randomly in song if there's something that reminds me of a song, like just then, High School Musical. You're going to pull some Zac Efron out of there? Oh, heck yeah. Better looking than Zac Efron with my double chin. All right, so in a letter, in a letter to Horace Greeley, uh, this is exactly, um, you have to understand Lincoln's view on slavery. The South thought that he wanted to free slaves right away. Um, And the North honestly could care less about slavery. Uh, The beginning of the war, slavery wasn't necessarily a moral issue that we were worth, that we were willing to fight for. And I know that's going to piss a lot of people off and it's going to frustrate a lot of historians, but I'm going to stand by my words. Uh, the beginning of the civil war was a war over states rights. And like I said, we will talk about it. Everything will come back to slavery, but we need to make it understandable. With that being said, here's uh, a letter uh, to uh, the honorable Horace Greeley. Dear sir, I have just read yours of the 19th. Addressed to myself through the New York Tribune. If there be in any statements or assumptions of fact, which I may know to be erroneous, I do not now and and here uh, controvert them. 
if there if there be in any interferences which I I may believe to be falsely drawn, I do not know and hear argue against them. If there be any uh, perceptible in in, in an impatient and dictatorial tone, I waive it in defense to an old friend whose heart I have always um, supposed to be right. As to the policy I seem to be pursuing, as you say, I have not meant to leave anyone in doubt. I would save the union. I would save it in the shortest way under the Constitution. The sooner the national authority can be restored, the nearer the union will be. The union as it was, if there be those who would not save the union, unless they could at the same time save slavery. I do not agree with them. If there be those who uh, would not save the union unless uh, they could at the same time destroy slavery, I do not agree with them. My paramount object in this struggle is to save the union. And it is not either to save nor to destroy slavery. If I could save the Union without freeing any slave, I would do it. And if I could save it by freeing all the slaves, I would do it. And if I could save it by freeing some of the, some and leaving others alone, I would also do that. What I do about slavery and the colored race, I do because I believe it helps to save the Union. And what I forbear, I forbear because I do not believe it would help to save the Union. I shall do less whenever I shall believe what I am doing hurts the cause. And I shall do more whenever I believe doing more will help the cause. I shall try to correct errors when shown to be errors. And I shall adopt new views so fast that they shall appear to be true views. I have here stated my purpose according to my view of official duty, and I intend no modification of my oft-expressed personal wish that all men everywhere could be free. Yours, Abraham Lincoln. Wow. Yeah. Basically, what that letter says, summed up, is I am going to do what I must to preserve the union. And suck. End of story. Suck it. (laughs) Well, anyways, he won won the election. And after winning the election, secession began. In fact... Southern states became pussies and said, I got <laughs> In fact, uh, the order of secession is as followed. Crybaby number one. <laughs> Crybaby number one, South Carolina on December 20th of 1860, Mississippi on January 9th, 1861, Florida, January 10th, 1861, Alabama, January 11th, 1861, Georgia, January 19th, 1861, Louisiana, January 26th, 1861, Texas, February 1st, 1861, Virginia, April 17th, 1861, Arkansas, May 6th, 1861, North Carolina, May 20th, 1861, and Tennessee rounded them out June 8th, 1861. And the only one of notable power was Virginia. Oh, and Texas. And Texas was kind of an interesting one because Texas, uh, Sam Houston, you know, the founder of of modern of modern day Texas at the time, he wholeheartedly believed in Abraham Lincoln, and he actually left Texas believing that uh, their, uh, their, it would be their downfall, pretty much. Um, he was very much against uh, um, secession. Um, just, just kind of a, a side note uh, there. Uh, so, a lot of uh in there. 
We can make a drinking game out of how many times I say, uh. Sam Houston, wasn't he the one with the dancing mustache in the Doritos commercial? Yeah, and he was, uh, and, and he was played by, uh, Dennis Quaid in the Alamo. We must save the Alamo. Alamo. <laughs> but taken. Another How I Met Your Mother joke, uh, inside joke there. All right, um. So in the 1860, uh, like I said, presidential election, uh, Abraham Lincoln um, beat uh, Democrat uh, Stephen A. Douglas by an overwhelming 82% majority of votes. For not being well-liked, he was pretty (laughs) well-liked. Something doesn't add up here. Kind of like today, that that's sounding awfully a lot like today. You know, uh, somebody's not well-liked, but he's well-liked by, I mean, he's not well-liked by the majority, but his followers are complete nincompoops. Anyways, so uh, number one, uh, the main grievances are causes of secession. Uh, we, we've covered slavery. Uh, it's been, it had been around since uh, the, uh, we started colonizing the, the Americas. Uh, we could go into a history of, uh, of uh, slavery. Um, but we're not going to, uh, also, uh, movement out West, uh, what state was, uh, what territory was going to be a slave state, what territory was going to become a free state. Uh, those were all very much, very big issues coming up. States rights, uh, sectionalism, uh, was another one resulted from different economies, social structure, customs, and political values of the North and South regional tensions came to a head during the war of 1812 in the Hartford convention. Uh, th- you got to remember the civil war wasn't the first time we talked about secession uh, during the war of 1812 in the Hartford convention. Um, some Northern States did discuss seceding from the union. Uh, Madison sent, uh, the regular army to quash that rebellion. In fact, um, after uh, the Battle of Baltimore and after we defeated the British, uh, the Hartford Convention quickly closed up and nothing was decided. Um, protectionism was another one. Uh, owners of enslaved people preferred low-cost manual labor with no mechanization. Northern manufacturing interests supported tariffs and protectionism, while uh, Southern planters demanded free trade. Once again, that kind of goes into states' rights and uh, the North kind of pushing their industrial weight around. Is that kind of what you were getting into before, Caleb? Okay. Yes. Yes. Um, so, yes, well, you have to remember the North's population, um, much larger than the South's, but what, what the South didn't have in manpower, they made up for in um, officers, training, uh, history, tradition, um, and all that. Um, Military school. Yes, uh, exactly. They had, mo- mo- <laughs> what was it, like 80 per- 80% of the military academies were in the South. West Point. <laughs> what? West Point. Yeah. Well, it's in New York, though. Best school ever. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, like the Virginia Military Academy and so on and so forth down there. Uh, so with that, the election of uh, Lincoln in November 60 was the final trigger for secession. We gave the order, blah, 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 blah. And um, here we go. Outbreak of war. Of course, Ooh. South Carolina was the first state to secede from the Union. You but they were also, just they were also a, the, what was that? Just a, a rebellion that was going to be quashed in three days. Right. And South Carolina was also the first state to sign the Declaration of Independence and the first state to sign the Constitution. And they were the first state to secede. So they couldn't wait 
to join the 13 colonies. They couldn't wait to join the new United States and they couldn't wait to leave the United States. Um, so remember that uh, when we do for future episodes, um, William Tecumseh Sherman, when he got into South Carolina, burned it to the ground. He said, this is where secession started. This is where it ends. And th- and they still have issues growing yeah. crops there. Kudos to you, William Tecumseh Sherman. So here we go. The Battle of Fort Sumter uh, was the first action of the Civil War. Uh, no casualties on either side. Uh, it was... Uh, 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 pretty much a mob of Confederate uh, forces surrounded uh, Fort Sumter, which was located in the middle um, of the harbor in Charleston, South Carolina. It was under the command of Major Anderson, and uh, Lincoln told uh, Anderson to hold until fired upon, which is accurate. Yup. And he did just that. Confederate Pre- uh, President Jefferson Davis ordered uh, ordered the surrender of the fort. Anderson gave a conditional reply to the uh, uh, Confederate government that the uh, the Confederate government rejected, and Davis ordered uh, General P.G.T. Uh, Beauregard to attack the fort before a relief expedition could arrive. He bombarded Fort Sumter uh, throughout April 12th and 13th, forcing, uh, forcing, <laughs> forcing, <laughs> forcing its capitulation. Oh. <laughs> Oh my God! Oh jeez, I can't talk today. No, That's new. I, I feel like I have cotton mouth. Do you have anything to add so far? I feel like I've been talking nonstop. <laughs> no, the, you're doing a great job covering it. Where's Napoleon when you need him? <clears throat> Napoleon is taking a nap. On St. Helen. <laughs> he died in 1821, so he wasn't alive during this. <laughs> oh, that's what you think. He's in Ivanweb today. Still in. <laughs> oh, He's Lord. And screaming. He didn't go Oh jeez. Okay. <sighs> we um we could talk about the movement of border states and, and the actions of border states. They sent forces to both sides. They kept their slaves. Blah blah blah. We know this. Uh, we're not going to cover it. Uh, just because, like I said, it's gonna, we're, 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 we're we want brothers fighting brothers. There, yeah, we need to, we need to get we need to get to the so we need to get to the uh, battle of Gettysburg is what it boils down to. Okay, so, there would be no battle of Gettysburg had there not been a raid on a, an armory in uh, Harper, Harper's yeah, Ferry. We're not there yet. Well, that that was that was John Brown, and that was before the Civil War took place, Caleb. That was in 1859. There would be no which, which deserves its which deserves its own episode. Really, John Brown was a interesting figure in American history. And if you haven't been to Harper's Ferry, go because I've you would, we'll see how difficult that raid actually would have been. So we're going to cover some key dates real quick um, leading up to the Battle of Gettysburg. Um, so 
we know the union continued to change hands multiple times according, um, with uh, leading officers. Uh, the Battle of Antietam um, would be a, a big morale, um, moral victory for the Union uh, because, yes, the Union suffered many more casualties, uh, McClellan's forces did, than Lee's, um, who had just taken over the Army of uh, Northern Virginia. However, McClellan held the field. We had to pull back. Uh, it was considered a victory. Um, in fact, um, uh, President Abraham Lincoln actually used this to... Um, oh my gosh! Uh, uh, released the Emancipation Proclamation, uh, which didn't free a single slave. Um, and instead, it was more of a it made a point that the Confederacy, who was trying to gain allies through Europe, um, pretty much said uh, they can't ally with you because they don't support a states who support slavery. Therefore, you're not going to get help. We called you out. We called your bluff. You're on your own, and that's exactly what what it did. Um, so. Uh, and then uh, leading up to December 13th of 1862, uh, probably one of the most vicious battles in the war, uh, the Battle of Fredericksburg. When you have men lined up, regiment by regiment, single, um, uh, each going um, shoulder to shoulder, sh- <laughs> up to a hill in a fortified position with thousands of Confederates behind you, behind it, you're going to lose this battle. Especially when you had the opportunity to take Fredericksburg well before the Confederate Army got there, and you didn't. Uh, Ambrose Burnside, you are today's moron of the day. He just won uh, the John Wilkes Booth Award. Yes. <laughs> well, we'll do a salute to you after this uh, episode here, uh, Ambrose Burnside. Ambrose Pussified Burnside. All right, so then in May of 1863, uh, the Battle of Chancellorsville, which was really uh, a bold move by Robert E. Lee and um, Stonewall Jackson, uh, because what happened, uh, a force of 133,000 U.S. troops versus uh, a, a Confederate army less than half its size, and Lee splits them. And surprises the Union and forces them to retreat. In fact, it was a huge victory for the Confederacy. However, um, gosh, I'm, I'm I get so ahead of myself sometimes when I'm reading. Um, anyways, during this battle, uh, late one night, uh, during the Battle of Chancellorsville, um, Ton- uh, Stonewall Jackson was checking his lines, making sure everything was on the up and up, and he was shot by his own men. He died just a couple days later. Um, when uh, when hearing about this, Robert E. Lee um, simply said he had lost his right hand man. He, had, um, he's because uh, first Jackson had to have his left arm amputated before the infection killed him, um, and he where he said, "I uh, Jackson lost his uh, left arm, and I have lost my right." It was a huge blow, which I think this moment here was a moment that led to a trickle down effect to the loss of the confederacy honestly i think this was the beginning pieces if jackson would have lived the civil war would have looked much different we would have had the united states and the confederate states of america you you really believe that huh i do i don't i don't think there was any chance in hell that the south could win i i really don't um but it would have made things a lot i think the war would have lasted even longer than what it did I will say this, when uh, 
Lee lost Jackson. Lee lost lost the ability to fight. He he lost the he lost the uh, his eyes and ears. Yeah, he lost the ability to go for the jugular. I think Jackson gave him that sense of invincibility that he had going into Gettysburg. I really do. Gettysburg was only a month away. Had had he not lost that, there was no stopping Lee from marching to Washington. Just saying. All right, so with that being said... With that being said, here we go to what this title is all about. So, after his success at Chancellorsville in Virginia of May 1863, Lee led his army through the Shenandoah Valley to begin his second invasion of the North. Uh, why did Lee want to uh, invade the North a second time? Uh, Antietam ended his first invasion. So, what, what, why would he want to invade the second time, Caleb? Supplies, food, weapons, ammo powder uh take the fighting spirit away from the north he wanted to force a surrender he thought if he could beat them in the north that uh surrender terms would be granted and they'd win their independence he also needed those supplies too he needed shoes yeah exactly uh, with his army in high spirits, Lee intended to shift the focus of the summer campaign from war-ravaged Virginia and hoped to influence northern politicians to give up their prosecution of the war by penetrating as far as Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, or even Philadelphia. Prodded by President Abraham Lincoln, Major General Joseph Hooker moved his army in pursuit, but was relieved of command just three days before the battle and replaced by George G. Meade, the old snapping turtle himself. Folks, when he was given the command, he had these officers coming up to his tent, and in his writings, do you know what George Meade said when he got told he was going to be given the command of the Union Army? He thought he was being arrested. And he leaves it at that. He doesn't say what for. He just says, I thought I was going to be arrested. Yep. (laughs) Which tells you he was not the man for the job. Oh, I wouldn't give it that. Uh, To give you a little background on George Meade, uh, this is the perfect man for the job in this specific incident. Why? What did George G. Meade do before the war? Do you know, Caleb? Cartography. He was, he uh, what was that? He made maps. Yeah, he, he was, uh, he was an officer in the, um, Army Corps of Engineers. He actually spent a lot of time in the Great Lakes, designed a few lighthouses here in the Great Lakes, mapped out shipping lanes, which we still currently use in the Great Lakes. He even built an observation tower on Mackinac Island. Isn't that insane? No. Pretty Not cool. for the time. Um, he stayed actually, he was in the Great Lakes until 1861 when the Civil War broke out. Uh, he was given the command, well, simply because he was the highest ranking officer in the region and he had an expert um, I, um, idea of topography and because Grant was otherwise busy elsewhere in the war. And we'll cover that here in a little bit as well um but with that we're going to take a quick break as we get into the meat and potatoes again of gettysburg 
So uh, stay tuned, folks. I think we should concentrate here. All the roads converge just east of this gap, and this junction will be very necessary. Yes, sir. I left my spectacles over there. What is the name of this town? Gettysburg. My home is in Virginia. The government of my home is home. Virginia would not allow itself to be ruled by by some uh, king over there in London. And it's not about to let itself be ruled by some president in Washington. Virginia, by God, sir, is going to be run by Virginians. It's a welcome back from Napoleon to killing history. Thanks, Napoleon. All right, so we are getting into uh, the Battle of Gettysburg. So we've discussed a little bit about George G. Meade. Um, We know Robert E. Lee, probably one of the best and greatest um, generals of the Civil War and in American history as a whole. He just ended up fighting on the wrong side. Because of state's loyalty, state loyalty, home loyalty. (laughs) So, on July 1st, 1863, as Lee uh, urgently concentrated his forces um, at Gettysburg, his objective being to engage the Union Army and to destroy it, he he didn't want Gettysburg. That wasn't the ground he picked. Uh, Low ridges to the northwest of town were defended initially by Union Cavalry Division under Brigadier General John Buford. With the newly instated repeater rifle so it made his force look and sound bigger than what it actually was he he held off an entire core of lee's army a division held off an entire freaking core of of confederate infantry for hours until he was reinforced by two corps of union infantry repeaters it's insane. Yeah, and they did their job um, using a bunch of uh, new techniques of uh, falling back and assaulting, falling back and assaulting. Um, and and f- finally having to run back through town and retreating, which Buford had expected. Buford picked out the land well before Lee's army had arrived. Buford knew this was the land that was going to be um, used for this battle It was too good to um, ignore And he knew it Especially with George G. Meade getting command Of the Union Army He knew that Meade would be the one to actually Use this land correctly With spots like Little Round Top Devil's Den uh, The Wheat Field um, Where else was there? What else was there? Oh, Big Round Top yeah, where there are t- a lot of yeah. It, so here With we go. Technology rifling in said cannons, which extended the range and was able to reach out and tickle the Confederate soldiers at a distance where they thought they would be safe. Right. So and uh, so the first day of battle, anticipating that the Confederates would march on Gettysburg from west on the morning of July first, Buford laid out defenses on three ridges west of the town uh, on. On Her Ridge, McPherson Ridge, and Seminary Ridge, these were the appropriate terrain for delaying action by a small cavalry division under against superior Confederate infantry forces meant to buy time awaiting for the arrival of un, Union infantrymen under the command of 
um, Major John F. Reynolds. He had a big mustache. <laughs> Confederate General uh, Henry Heath's division uh, advanced with two brigades forward, and this is the um, this is the initial attack between Heath's and Buford's um, um, Buford's divisions. Um, General Reynolds, um, when, once he arrived uh, with the Union Iron Brigade uh, under General uh, Solomon Meredith, uh, one of his uh, lesser officers underneath General Reynolds, um, they enjoyed initial success against um, um, General Lysander Cutler. Huh, what a name. What a name. But anyways... The initial success against um, the, the Confederates capturing several hundred men, including um, where is this general's name? This is written really weird. I wrote it out really bad. Anyways, Buford kept falling back and fell back to the land he chose just outside of town. General Reynolds was shot and killed early in the fighting on day one while directing troop and artillery placements just to the east of the, the woods. Shelby foot. A very well-known historian of the Civil War wrote that the Union cause uh, lost a man considered by many to be the best general in the army. Um, He was very underrated. Major General uh, uh, Reynolds. He was. He didn't get the opportunity to to succeed. Um, he would have definitely rose up the ranks. Um, we should do a whole episode on him too. Uh, anyways, uh, here's here's a here's a name for you. Ready for it? this name's gonna sound awfully familiar to you. Ready? Uh huh. Major General Abner Doubleday. Doubleday. Who is he? What is he credited for in American history? I don't know. You do know. Remind I don't know me. why he's credited. With, I don't know why he's credited with it. But he, he, according to Abner Doubleday, he is the one that gets credit for creating the game of baseball. No, no, Adam Sandler did that. (laughs) Um, he, uh, I saw a video, it's on the internet. Adam Sandler did it. Major General Abner Doubleday assumed command of Reynolds' forces. Fighting in the Chambersburg Pike uh, area lasted about till 12.30 p.m. and resumed at about 2.30 when his entire division engaged, adding brigades of Pettigrew and Colonel John M. Brokenbrough. As, <laughs> as Pettigrew's Northern uh, North Carolina Brigade came online, they flanked the 19th Indiana and drove the Iron Brigade back. The 26th North Carolina, the largest regiment in the Army with 839 men, lost heavy casualties, leaving the first day's fight with about 212 men. Started with 839, left with 212. By the end of the three-day battle, they had 152 men left, the highest casualty percentage for one battle of any regiment north or south in the war. Slowly, the Iron Brigade was pushed out of the woods towards Seminary Ridge. Hill added Major General William Dorsey Pender's division to the assault, and the 1st Corps was driven back through the grounds of Lutheran Seminary in in the Gettysburg streets. Whew. About 2 p.m., the Confederate Second Corps divisions of Major General Robert E. Rhodes and Jubal Early assaulted and outflanked the Union First and Sixth Corps. Positions north and northwest of town, the Confederate brigades of Edward O'Neill and Brigadier General Alfred Iverson, not, not you know, practice, not that Iverson, different Iverson, suffered severe, I- lo- 
suffered severe losses in assaulting the first corps division of Brigadier General John Z. Robinson, south of Oak Hill. Blah, 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 blah. They got pushed back. We're leading into the second day. I feel like I'm just a broken record, just talking history uh, in lecture style, and I don't like it. What did we do differently in the first episode? Like, I feel like the format's actually making us lose our our, our luster here. Uh, we did Battlefield. Um, reports? Reports, yeah. <laughs> do you think that... Do you th- are you getting bored listening to me talk? No, because this is something that I thoroughly enjoy. And I think anybody who listens to us will thoroughly enjoy it because it's history. Okay. Blah. <laughs> okay, so second day of battle. And as we go into the second day, almost all the fighting was done afternoon, which would progress to be a problem. Heat plays a factor. Wool uniforms. As somebody who has worn the wool uniform uh, as a reenactor, it's hot. Yep. Extremely hot and itchy and uncomfortable with all the gear that you're walking in, walking in. The Brogans, their shoes, not comfortable one bit. Um, So that that does start playing into a factor. Um, And then they really wouldn't attack much at night due to visibility and not being able to see very clearly at who they are shooting at another fun fun fact there right and during the evening of the first night into the second day uh the 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 confederates could see constant reinforcements of the union coming in this was uh, this was a battle that you got to remember that the, the 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 Confederacy came in from the north and the Union came in from the south, and both armies were constantly reinforcing throughout the battle. This is what really caused the battle to be the way it was, uh, with high death tolls and just catastrophic losses. Um, but there there are accounts. Dave. There are, yeah, there's accounts of that first night that uh, the Confederates could see um, hundreds of thousands of fire um, bonfires and all that of the Union forces in their camps, um, constant, which gave them their numbers. And whew. so here we go. Um, we're going into the second day, and this is where the Union shape starts to take place. Um, this is the only time in, uh, in, in military academies they teach the fish hook defense, but this is the only time, not even in U.S. history, but in world history, that a fish hook defense wasn't just used, but successful in battle. And it is considered to be one of the most in, impregnable defenses in, um, in, in, in uh, military strategy. And, of course, like we said, the perfect man, um, it was a perfect storm of who had the command. If it was any other general, do you think the fish hook defense would have been used? No, that's my thought. I agree. Uh, this was, I honestly think they wouldn't have used, uh, Lee wanted to get to the high ground, mm-hmm. really wanted the high ground, and he worked hard. Mm-hmm. He, second day, he battered that left flank all day long. Yeah, we're about to get ground. into it, yep. and it obviously didn't work out that way. Well, the second day, as we're going to come in, uh, it was a a series of near misses for Lee. Lee almost had him every time. 
But it was either poor communication, poor timing, or com- combination of both, which caused the Union to lose. I mean, the, the Confederacy to lose. Excuse, excuse me. Um, so we're going to get into the second day. Throughout the evening of July 1st and the morning of July 2nd, the remaining infantry of both armies arrived down the field, including the Union's 2nd, 3rd, 5th, 6th, and 7th Corps. Two of Longstreet's divisions were on the road. Uh, General George Pickett had begun the 22-mile march from Chambersburg, while Brigadier General E.M. Law had begun the march from um, Gulford. Both arrived late in the morning. Um, which is another reason why we didn't. Most of the fighting in the second day didn't happen until afternoon, was because armies were constantly reinforcing each other, and we did not have any news of where the Union's um, locations book. were because Jeb Stewart was nowhere to be found at this point. Folks, back then, Union was the eyes and ears of any commander. You mean the cavalry? Yeah, what I say. You said Union. I knew what you meant. I knew what you were saying because I just said Jeb Stewart. Uh, but ah, yeah, but I, I just <laughs> yeah. It, but, Calvary was there for scouting and cleanup. <laughs> they were out there finding these lines, letting them getting numbers. They they were the modern day uh, scout sniper. Mm-hmm. So. That's part of the reason why Lee also was hesitant to attack until later in the day. He was right. hoping to get some news. Right. All right. So. With that. Um, attacks on the Union left flank as Longstreet's left division under Major General Lafayette McClaw's advance. They unexpectedly found Major General Dan Sickles. Um, a third corps directly in their path. Sickles had been dissatisfied with the position assigned to him on the southern end of Cemetery Ridge because he thought um, he, he would be better used somewhere else and he thought that land would be um, better used um, for other purposes. He didn't think anybody would attack there. He didn't. Uh, he, he thought he'd be better used somewhere else and that nobody was going to come through. Uh, anyways, um, centered at uh, Sherfee Farms uh, Peach Orchard, he, um, he violated orders and advanced his corps to the slightly higher ground along Emmitsburg Road, moving away from Cemetery Ridge. The new line ran from Devil's Den, northwest of the Peach Orchard, then northeast along Emmitsburg Road to the south of Kodori Farm. This created an untenable salient at Peach Orchard. Brigadier General Andrew A. Humphrey's division in possession of the Emmitsburg Road and Major General David B. Burney's division to the south were subject to attacks from two sides and were spread out over a longer front than their small corps could defend effectively. The Confederate artillery was ordered to open fire at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. After failing to attend a meeting at this time of Meade's corps commanders, Meade rode to Sickles himself, his position, and demanded an explanation of the situation. Why the fuck are you here? You are not supposed to be here. My defense isn't going to work if you don't listen to me. There's the reason why they called him the old snapping turtle. Yes. <laughs> I could yeah. imagine how that meeting went. Well, yeah, I want to see action. My men will need action, and this isn't going to work. Well, Meade's Get getting constant. Right, Meade's getting constant word that Longstreet is gathering up a force to hit that left flank hard. 
And Meade has nobody on that left flank to defend it at this moment. Sickles is literally the only man defending this part of the flank right now. And that ain't going to work. So then Meade had to change tactics and say he pretty much told... (sighs) The best way to put it, Meade knew a Confederate attack was on its way. He could see Longstreet reinforcing. So knowing Sickles was so far in front of the Union line, he told Sickles, instead of withdrawing, hold your ground. And behind, he had to call in um, 20,000 reinforcements, the entire 5th Corps. Yep. He had to call in the entire 5th Corps to hold that left flank. And this is where we're coming into uh, the bat, uh, the part of a uh, little round top and all that. Um, so are we ready for it? I am ready. All righty. Meade was forced to send 20,000 reinforcements in the entire fifth Corps. Uh, General uh, John C. Caldwell's division of the 2nd Corps, most of the uh, 7th Corps, and portions of the newly arrived 6th Corps. Hood's division moved more to the east than intended, losing its alignment with the Emmitsburg Road, attacking Devil's Den and Little Round Top. McClaws, coming in on Hood's left, drove multiple attacks into thinly stretched 3rd Corps in the wheat field and overwhelmed them in Sherfree's Peach Orchard. McClaw's attack eventually reached Plum Run Valley, the Valley of Death, before being beaten back by the Pennsylvania Reserves Division of the 5th Corps. Moving down from Little Round Top, um, oh, sorry, I read that wrong, moving down from Little Round Top. The 3rd Corps was virtually destroyed as a combat unit in this battle, and Sickles' leg was amputated after it was shattered by a cannonball. Fuck you, Sickles. Fuck you. Um, actually, you know what the, you want to know a little side note about Sickles, you know, he was actually, uh, charged with murder for killing his wife's lover. I did. <laughs> I, did I did know that. So fuck you, Sickles. Caldwell's division was destroyed by, uh, destroyed, uh, the Caldwell's division was destroyed piecemeal in the wheat field. Uh, Anderson's division coming uh, from McClaw's left and starting forward about 6 p.m. We're getting late in the day already, 6 o'clock in the afternoon, uh, early July. Reached the crest of Cemetery Ridge, but could not hold the position in the face of counterattacks from the 2nd Corps, including an almost suicidal bayonet charge by the 1st Minnesota Regiment against the Confederate Brigade. And that was ordered in desperation by Hancock to buy time before those reinforcements arrived. At this point, they know that attack on the left flank is coming, and they are doing everything they can to make sure that those 20,000 reinforcements get up on those defensive positions to hold that left flank. If that left flank fails, the whole Union position will fail. And they will lose the battle, and Washington, D.C. is up for the taking. Correct? Correct. This was an important battle. We're getting up to the most important moments of the war. We are. <laughs> this is... This is the uh, tide-turning battle of the entire war. This and Vicksburg. I would say Vicksburg was just as important in different ways. Yeah. As fighting raged in the wheat field in Devil's Den, Colonel Strong Vincent of the 5th Corps had, uh, had a precarious hold on Little Round Top, an important hill in the extreme left of the Union line. This was the extreme left, meaning 
that's where the line begins or ends, depending on how you look at it. His brigade of four relatively small regiments was able to resist repeated assaults by Brigadier General Evander M. Law's Brigade of Hood's Division. Meade's chief engineer, Brigadier General, oh, listen to this name, Gouverneur K. Warren, had realized the importance of this position and dispatched Vincent's brigade and artillery battery and the 140th New York to occupy Little Round Top mere minutes before troops arrived from Hood's division. The defense of Little Round Top with a bayonet charge by the 20th Maine ordered by Colonel Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain, but possibly led by Lieutenant Holman S. Melcher, you knew the name, was one of the most fabled episodes in the Civil War and propelled Colonel Chamberlain into prominence after the war. Chamberlain would win uh, 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 a Medal of Honor. He'd become governor of Maine, president of Bowdoin College, all that good stuff. So here we go. Um, we're going to go into the little, a little more detail on the 20th, uh, 20th Maine. Uh, they're one of my favorite regiments in the whole war, probably everybody's. Uh, the mo- it was... Uh, the Battle of Gettysburg, where it was stationed on Little Round Top at the extreme left of the Union line. They were the beginning or end of the Union line, depending on how you looked at it. If they caved, the whole Union caved. Correct? Correct. When the Most regiment important. caved. Oh, go ahead. Most important are your extreme most outer flanks. And they only would give those to um, people that they trusted and knew could hold and do the job that they were told to do. Yeah, these guys had fought in Fredericksburg. Uh, they had fought in many other battles as well. Um, and they, bought, they fought in Antietam, Fredericksburg, Chancellorsville, Gettysburg, and then Spotsylvania, uh, Petersburg, Five Forks, and Appomattox. So they, they fought in some pretty big battles. Um, but with that, the 20th Maine... Uh, oh, I missed a sentence there. Excuse me. I wrote a lot down before this episode. When the regiment came under heavy attack from the Confederate 15th and 47th Alabama regiments, part of the division led by Major General John Bell Hood, the 20th Maine ran low on ammunition after one and a half hours of continuous fighting. It responded to the sight of rebel infantry forming again for yet another push up this steep slope that uh, slope at them by instead suddenly charging downhill with fixed bayonets, surprising and scattering the Confederates, thus ending the attack on the hill and attempt and the attempt to flank the hill position and move around the south end of the federal fish hook. The 20th Maine and the adjacent 83rd Pennsylvania together captured many men from both Alabama regiments, including C- Lieutenant Colonel Michael Bulger, commander of the 47th, uh, as well as several other men from the 4th Alabama, 4th and 5th Texas regiments of the same division. Had the 20th Maine retreated from the hill, the entire Union line would have been flanked, endangering and hurting the Union regiments in the vicinity and probably losing the Battle of Gettysburg. That's how important the 20th Maine was in this battle. That's how important this moment was in the civil war. They came down like a door. Um, uh, Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain was a professor. He taught everything but mathematics at Bowden college. (laughs) This guy knew us. This guy knew his stuff, you know, he did one of the greatest. I don't want to say one of the greatest minds, uh, in military history, but he understood what they were trying to do to him. Mm-hmm. He understood how to combat that and make them look like fools. Right. Alrighty, folks. So with that, we're going to take a quick break and we're going to go into the third day, the high watermark for the Confederacy 
and uh, the aftermath of the Battle of Gettysburg. So stay tuned. What a piece of work is man. How infinite in faculties and form and moving. How express and admirable. In action, how like an angel. Well, if he's an angel, all right then. But he damn well must be a killer angel. Good Lord, George, what is that smell? That's me. Ain't it lovely? Whoa. You got it off a dead Frenchman. It's perfect timing. Welcome back. <laughs> oh, gosh. So here we go. Going into the third day of battle. Not much happened all the way up until one o'clock in the afternoon. General Lee wished to renew attacks on Friday, July 3rd, using the same basic plan as the previous day. Longstreet would attack the Union left, while Ewell attacked Culp's Hill. However, before Longstreet was ready, uh, the Union 7th Corps troops started a dawn artillery bombardment against the Confederates on Culp's Hill in an effort to regain a portion of lost um, defenses. The Confederates attacked, and the second fight for Culp's Hill ended at about 11 o'clock in the morning. Harry fans judged that after some seven hours of bitter combat, the Union line was intact and held more strongly than before. Uh, pretty much, to put it in layman's terms, uh, the whole second day of battle, Lee hit the flanks, the right and the left flanks. So yeah. he thought that Meade would reinforce the flanks, correct? And leave the center not as well defended. Right. Meade Which would have been general knowledge at that time. You hit my flanks, that's where you're going to hit me again. Uh, Meade understood what Lee was doing and reinforced the center and not not his flanks. He didn't leave his flanks weak by any means, but he definitely used what he had in reserves in the center of the field. Right. Um, One of Lee's downfalls is the fact that he was very um, predictable. And, and how he moved armies, especially in multi-day-long battles, uh, to try to end it. Um, and he also knew Lee was desperate. Uh, he knew Lee wanted to end the war. But one thing that uh, Meade had that Lee didn't was more men, and actually he had men who hadn't fought yet. He had fresh troops. Lee did not. So um, Lee was Lee. forced to change. What was that? I'm sorry. He was depleting his force with each each attack. He was depleting his force. He was losing more men than than he was taking. Right. Lee was forced to change plans. Longstreet would command Pickett's Virginia division of his own first corps, plus six brigades from Hill's corps in an attack on the Union's second corps position at the right center of the Union line on Cemetery Ridge. Prior to the attack, all the artillery um, for the Confederacy could bring to bear on the Union positions would bombard and weaken the enemy lines. Much has been made about um, what Longstreet... We know Longstreet did not support a, a direct frontal assault on the Union center. We know this. Cute baby, by the way. She's not happy. <laughs> She's not into history. Aww. So Lee wrote over after this is uh, out of uh, Longstreet's memoirs here. Lee wrote over after sunset and gave his orders. His plan was 
mean Sunrise, excuse me. His plans were to assault the enemy's left center by a column to be composed of McClaws and Hood's division reinforced by Pickett's, Pickett's brigade. I thought that it would not do, that the point had been fully tested the day before by more men when all were fresh, that the enemy was there looking for us as we heard, uh, heard him during the night putting up more defenses. That the divisions of McClaws and Hoods were holding a mile along the right of my line, along 20,000 men who would follow their withdrawal, strike the flank of the assaulting column, crush it, and then and get on our rear towards the Potomac River. That 30,000 men was the minimum of force necessary for the work. That even such force would need to uh, close would need close cooperation on other parts of the line. That the column that he has as he has proposed to organize it would have only about thirteen would have only thirteen thousand men. The divisions having lost a third of their numbers the day before. That the column would have to march a mile under concentrated battery fire and a thousand yards under long range musketry. That the conditions were different from those in the days of Napoleon, when field battles had a range of 600 yards and musketry about 60 yards. And that is a big thing to read. The reason why, you're using Napoleonic tactics with technology that would totally obliterate those tactics. You know what I mean? These guns could shoot way further. These cannons could shoot way further. Pretty much what he's saying is this is suicide. Yes. He said the distance was not more than 1,400 yards. General Meade's estimate was a mile or a mile and a half. Captain Long, the guide of, field of, uh, the, guide of the field of Gettysburg in 1888, stated that it was a trifle over a mile. He then concluded that divisions of McClaws and Hoods could remain on the defense line that he would reinforce by the divisions of the 3rd Corps and Pickett's Brigades, and stated that the point to which the march should be directed at um, I asked the strength of the column. He stated 15,000. Opinion was then expressed. The 15,000 men who could make a successful assault over that field um, had never been arrayed for battle. But he was impatient of listening, tired of talking, and nothing was left but to proceed. Meaning that he was desperate. He he knew Lee was desperate. He, 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 um, he told Lee his issues. Lee just didn't listen. It was, it was, the decision was made in Lee's head. So about one p- uh, at one o'clock around, uh, from 150 to 170 guns began to, uh, the uh, hu- largest artillery bombardment of the war. In order to save valuable ammunition for the infantry attack that they knew would follow, the Army of Potomac's artillery under command of Brigadier General Henry Jackson Hunt at first did not return fire. And that also um, tricked the Confederacy into thinking that they had weakened the Union artillery. After waiting about 15 minutes, about 80 Union cannons added to the din. The Army of Northern Virginia was critically low on artillery ammunition, and the cannonade did not significantly affect the Union position at all. And here we are. Pickett's charge. You're stinky. (laughs) About 3 o'clock, the cannon fire subsided. 12,500 Southern soldiers stepped from the ridgeline and advanced three quarters of a mile to Cemetery Ridge and is what is known as Pickett's Charge. Uh, Pickett's Charge uh, was um, just a disaster from the get-go. Oh, it, it was it was horrid. Um, it it lasted only uh just less than an hour. Uh, you had um a t- about thirteen thousand infantry in uh, about eleven brigades, 
and uh, about 150 to 170 cannons, like we just said. In that, there are 1,123 killed, 4,019 wounded, 3,750 captured for the Confederacy, and 1,500 captured and wounded, uh, killed and wounded for uh, the Union. This would be known as the high water mark for the Confederacy. It was uh, Major. It was uh, Brigadier General Louis A. Armistead. Remember, we mentioned his uh, his relative held Fort McHenry uh, in the War of eighteen twelve. Um, he led a brigade of Major General George Pickett's division at the angle. That is what is referred to. He ordered his Confederates to turn two captured cannons against Union troops, but discovered there was no ammunition left. The last double canister shots having been used against the charging Confederates, Armistead was wounded shortly after three times. His best his best friend from um, West Point uh, was um, was Hooker. Um, and both were more mortally wounded uh, during this battle. Pickett's charge was a disaster. Um, af- afterwards, uh, Pickett was ordered by Lee to regroup his troops and attack again. In which, what did Pickett have to say? <laughs> what troops? Generally, when he said regroup, uh, reform your division, he said, Lee, I have no division. And in that sense, chills down my spine because Pickett, who almost started a war with Great Britain in the 1850s, yes, true story, the the pig war, <laughs> um, yep. in Canada, yep, um, <laughs> graduated at the bottom of his class. Uh, he he had just these views on glory, uh, and he never achieved them. In fact, he uh, held a huge a huge um, vendetta. A huge, he, he held it against Lee for the rest of his life. Yes. And also, this is also where we hear, um, we start hearing the name of a certain other officer from Michigan, Custer, in the cavalry battles against Jeb Stewart. Jeb Stewart. Right there. <laughs> Jeb Stewart said he wanted to cut that little bastard's head off pretty much. Uh, he said he couldn't stand that long-headed, that long red-headed freak in modern terminology is pretty much what it equated to. Yep. Um, so. One of the greatest minds during the Civil War, after the Civil War, dumb as rocks. Yeah, he was a complete freaking moron. <laughs> Anyways. So there is the Battle of Gettysburg. Uh, George Meade would not follow Lee's defeated forces after the battle, um, stating that he had heavy losses too. Uh, so we'll get into that. Uh, the Union Army, um, the number is approximately 104,000 men in, involved in the battle, anywhere from 71 to 75,000 men involved for the Confederacy. For casualties, anywhere from 23,000 um, total for the United States, anywhere from 23 to 28,000 for the Confederacy. The Union once again held the field. This would be the la- the closest the Union, uh, the Confederacy would ever get to taking Washington and possibly winning the war. Um, along with the battles of Vicksburg, which Ulysses S. Grant had finally beat them into submission and forced the surrender. In fact, uh, Vicksburg wouldn't celebrate the 4th of July for another 90 years after that. That's how embarrassed they were of surrendering uh those two those two battles um in july uh early july of 1863 turned the tide of the civil war there would be a lot of bloodshed yet to come but this was the moment in the civil war 
So, with that being said, in addition to being the deadliest battle of the war, Gettysburg also had the highest number of generals killed in action. The Confederacy lost uh, Paul Jones Semmes, William Barksdale, William Dorsey Pender, uh, Richard Garnett, and Louis Armistead, as well as Johnston, uh, Johnston Pettigrew uh, during retreat after the battle. The Union lost John Reynolds, uh, Zook, Weed, <laughs> Farnsworth, and Strong uh, Strong Vincent, who after being mortally wounded was given a deathbed promotion to Brigadier General. Additional senior officers' casualties included the wounding of Union Generals Dan Sickles, who lost a leg, Francis C. Barlow, Daniel Butterfield, and Winfield Scott Hancock. For the Confederacy, Major General John Bell Hood lost the use of his left arm, while Major General Henry Heath received a shot to the head on the first day of battle. Though incapacitated for the rest of the battle, he remarkably survived without long-term injuries, saying that you could be brain dead and still be all right. Look at our current president. (laughs) (laughs) Credited in part due to his hat. His hat was, oh, oh, that's awesome. That's why. He had a hat stuffed full of paper dispatches. (laughs) Confederate generals uh, James L. Kemper and Isaac R. Trimble were severely wounded during Pickett's charge and captured during the Confederate retreat. General James J. Archer, in command of the brigade, most likely was responsible for killing Reynolds, was taken prisoner shortly after Reynolds' death. The following... (laughs) So here are the casualties per corps, per um, corps of each army. The first corps in the United States... 6,059 men, second corps, 4,300, third corps, 4,200, fifth corps, uh, about 2,200, sixth corps, 242. She is cute. Sixth corps, 3,800, seventh corps, about 1,100, cavalry lost almost 900, Remember, the most important person in this battle, in my honest-to-God opinion, was definitely uh, Buford, who chose the ground well before the battle started. If it wasn't for the ground that he chose, I don't think we would have won this battle. No. You don't think you don't think that uh, uh, ground choice would come into play, but back then, ground choice was everything. Right. The Philadelphia Inquirer after the battle proclaimed victory, Waterloo eclipsed. New York diarist George Templeton Strong wrote, the results of this victory are priceless. The charm of Robert E. Lee's invincibility broken. The Army of the Potomac has at last found a general that can handle it and has stood nobly up to its terrible work in spite of its long disheartening list of hard-fought failures. Copperheads are Copperhead, copperheads are paced and dumb for the moment, at least. Government is strengthened fourfold at home and abroad. However, the Union enthusiasm soon dissipated as the public realized that Lee's army had escaped destruction and the war would continue. Lincoln complained to the Secretary of the Navy, Gideon Wells, that our army held war in the hollow of its hand and they would not close it. Brigadier General Alexander S. Wrote, Alexander S. Webb wrote to his father on July 17th, stating that such Washington politicians as Chase Seward and others discussed, discussed, uh, disgusted with Meade, write to me that Lee won that battle. 
but it would have a huge negative effect on the Confederacy. Um, this would be the only battle that Lee and Meade would fight against each other, and uh, Meade ca- caught uh, Lee's um, consistent battle plans, and he called him out on his predictability. Um, Lee was... Um, the Invincible Lee was very, very, very much beatable. Gotcha. Yep. She's a thinker, <laughs> but, but I'll keep her. The war would last for another year and a half, ending at Appomattox Courthouse in April of 1865 with uh, Ulysses S. Grant discussing Lee's surrender terms. So do you have any closing thoughts, Caleb? Uh, just linked to that war or that battle. There are 72 Medal of Honors awarded. The last of which was awarded in 2014. Really? Awarded to one Lieutenant Alonzo Cushing. Just for a fun fact. I'm going to look that up real quick. I want to see what he did. That part I don't know. Let's see here. Uh, August 26, 2014, the White House announced that he would be posthumously awarded a Medal of Honor with President Obama presiding over official ceremony. Uh, Let's see why he got it. Uh, He was nominated for a belated award for the Medal of Honor, beginning with a letter campaign in the late 80s by uh, constituent Senator William Proxmere of Wisconsin. Uh, let's see. They researched his background. The measure, let's see. He nominated Cushion for the Medal of Honor, and following a lengthy investigation, the uh, Army approved the nomination in 2010. Uh, let's see why. Uh, distinguished himself by acts of bravery above and beyond the call of duty while serving as an artillery commander in Battery A, 4th U.S. Artillery, Army of the Potomac at Gettysburg. That morning, Confederate forces led by Robert E. Lee began cannonading First Lieutenant Cushing's position on Cemetery Ridge. Using field glasses, Cushing directed fire for his own artillery battery. He refused to leave the battlefield after being struck in the shoulder by a shell fragment. As he continued to direct fire, he was struck again, this time suffering a grievous damage to his abdomen. Still refusing to abandon his command, he boldly stood tall in the face of Major General George E. Pickett's charge and continued to direct devastating fire on, into oncoming forces as the Confederate forces closed in. First Lieutenant Cushing was struck in the mouth by an enemy bullet and fell dead beside his gun. Wow. Awesome. Nice nice anecdote there, Caleb. Good ad. Yeah. Um, so... Real quick, before we sign off, um, you did talk about states' rights and the lost cause. Um, it was uh, started in the late 1800s. Um, many, uh, this is where North, the War of Northern Aggression and all that came in. Um, so to give you a summary, to say that history is written by the victors, but the Civil War has been a rare exception, perhaps the need for the country to stay together made it necessary for the North to sit silently and accept the South's conception of the victor of the conflict. In any case, for most of the past 150 years, the South's version of the war and the reconstruction has held sway in our schools, our literature, and since the dawn of feature films, our movies, San Francisco Chronicle. Um, the best way to put it, the best way to put it, um, I'm going to put it in layman's terms here. Uh, they say it was states' rights. They fought it over states' rights because we were um, constantly um, taxing um, 
tariffs um, on their cottons uh, being exported to where they were losing money on their cottons and not getting money. Um, um, and it wasn't slavery. However, they gave two shits less about states' rights uh, is what we really come to find out. Uh, constantly, they'd say states' rights, but then mention slavery in the same sentence. Much like Republicans today, if you ask them to defend President Trump, just tell them not they cannot mention Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama, or Democrats as a whole. They will flounder because they have nothing. Therefore, same kind of situation. Uh, they cannot use the argument of uh, of uh, states' rights because their states' rights, the only right they wanted to hold was slavery. That's it. Yet the lost cause of the Confederacy was uh, a, a more of a nationalistic Southern sense that they um, were holding on to their ideals, which was not the case. Um, to put it in layman's terms is the best way to put it. There you go. Um, we're going to definitely do more episodes on the American Civil War. Um and much, much more. Uh, so any other last thoughts here, Caleb? I don't have any. All right. Um, so with that, folks, we are going to leave you to a nice, um, awesome weekend. You guys have a good weekend. Um, enjoy history. Um, I, I got to think of a good sign-off. Live uh, free today because of the past. Learn from the past so you don't repeat it in the future. And Nathan Hale never said, my only regret is I have but one life to lose for my country. I, I believe that wholeheartedly. He never said it. All right. So with that, folks, have a good weekend. I'm Ryan. I'm Caleb. Uh, God bless, guys. Peace.